You know, Mark says that when he and Amy lead worship, they don't do anything special or unique. Meanwhile, Amy's up here playing tambourine with her foot. (laughs) Thanks to Mark and Amy both for, for being here. In a recent meeting with our small group, we talked about what I would argue is one of the greatest works of theology of our time. And the work of theology I'm speaking of wrestles with some of the most complex moral and philosophical questions you can imagine. Questions about right and wrong and forgiveness, redemption and justice, just to name a few. But it addresses these concepts in a way that is relatable and understandable. And as you see this work unfold before your eyes, it has the power to make you laugh, cry, and think more deeply about how you live. Now, the theological masterpiece I speak of is none other than the TV show, My Name is Earl. If you haven't seen My Name is Earl, the show revolves around a man named Earl. Earl Hickey, to be specific. Earl is a scoundrel guilty of all kinds of terrible deeds throughout his life. But then one day, Earl's life changes forever when he wins the lottery. The wicked prosper, as many writers in scripture mourned. But when Earl goes outside to celebrate his winning lottery ticket, he gets hit by a car, and he loses that winning ticket. So when he wakes up from his injuries, when he wakes up in the hospital, Earl takes the accident as a sign from the universe. Specifically, the concept known as karma in many Eastern religions. Karma teaches that what goes around comes around. And you eventually get what you deserve, whether it's good or bad. So from there, the rest of the show revolves around Earl's attempts to appease the universe by righting all the wrongs he's done throughout his life. He has a list of every single person he can remember mistreating, and he begins his quest to make amends. And at the end of each episode, Earl is seen crossing one more task off the list, getting just a little bit closer to making up for all that he had done wrong. Now, it might sound silly, but the concepts featured in that show, these big ideas of justice and ethics and redemption and forgiveness, can be difficult to wrap your mind around. But I think most of us can relate to Earl in some ways. We likely have our own memories of when we've done wrong, and we've probably experienced that same desire to make up for our mistakes, that longing to atone for our sins. But the problem, of course, is that even if you do right all the wrongs that you can remember, if Earl ever really does cross all the tasks off that list, you still might find yourself with questions. What if there's something I forgot to include on the list? What if I wronged someone and they never even told me about it? What if there are some wrongs that no matter how hard I try, simply can't be righted? Now, I don't know if Earl wrestled with those questions, and I can guess that maybe some of us have wrestled with those questions, but I can tell you with certainty that Martin Luther, Martin Luther's day to those questions as a Roman You could get grace by taking communion or attending mass faithfully or buying indulgences like we talked about last week. 
consistently confessing sins to your priest and performing the acts of repentance that he assigned. Grace was offered by God through the church, but more than anything, it was treated as the occasional shot in the arm before you went back out into the world to prove yourself to God by your good works. And one of the most common works of that day, a way to get more grace, was to make a pilgrimage to a supposedly holy relic of the Christian faith. For example, if you went and saw a piece of Jesus's cross, then that could be a little more grace credited to your account. If you went to Rome and kissed each step of the staircase that Jesus supposedly climbed to face Pilate, they had picked it up and moved it from Jerusalem. Well, if you kissed that staircase enough, you could add a little bit of grace to your account and shave off some time for someone else in purgatory. And as a Roman Catholic monk, Luther went even further in these attempts to earn God's forgiveness, to get a little bit more grace. He was known to go without food for days at a time or intentionally sleep without a blanket in the middle of the winter, all for the sake of proving himself righteous, all for the sake of getting a little bit more grace. Now, you can almost picture Martin Luther before his breakthrough in the book of Romans being pretty good friends with Earl Hickey. They might both have their lists out, marking all the things they'd done wrong, trying to make them right, and hoping that in Earl's case, karma, or in Martin Luther's case, God, would be satisfied with their efforts. But Earl's view of karma and Martin Luther's early view of God don't match up with the grace we actually read about in Scripture. Grace is the opposite of karma. Instead of getting what you deserve, you get the exact opposite of what you deserve. To show grace to someone is to withhold the punishment that you're justified to give them. But then even further than that, you go on and bless them. Grace is an unmerited gift, meaning there's no work that Earl Hickey or Martin Luther or you or me could ever perform to deserve it. You know, we talk about grace a lot within the church. We throw it around in all kinds of ways, some more sound and appropriate than others. Grace is one of those Christian words that you shout out when your Bible study leader asks you a question and you don't know what the answer is. But what do we really mean when we talk about God's grace? And even more specifically, what do Protestants mean when we say that we are saved by grace alone? Sola gratia. And how are we, even to this day, sometimes guilty of trusting in our works rather than trusting in God's grace for our salvation? So with that, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read in Ephesians chapter 2, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you that we can speak with you, that we can 
approach your throne with confidence that we can pray knowing that you hear us, not because we deserve a hearing, not because you owe it to us to listen, but because you are so good and so gracious to us. Because of your death, your son's death on the cross, we can approach you. We can speak with you. We can pray to you as a father. And we are grateful for that. So, Father, be with us this morning as we read your word. Give us clarity. Give us understanding. And I pray that we would leave here remembering just how much we owe you, which is everything. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's read in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We'll come back to verses 1 through 7. But verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Last week, we introduced those five solas of the Protestant Reformation, the five core convictions that divided Protestants and Roman Catholics 500 years ago, and in many ways still divide us today. The first sola was sola fide, or faith alone. At its most basic level, we defined faith as belief in testimony. To say that we have faith in something means we've evaluated it from many different angles, and we believe that thing to be true, even though we can't fully confirm it. When we place our faith in a message, we're not just trusting the message itself, but we're also trusting the messenger. We read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the shining example of faith in the pages of Scripture is none other than Abraham. Abraham believed God's promises so much that he did what God told him to do, even when it seemed impractical or unwise or counterproductive. Paul says that Abraham was justified or declared righteous by faith. He wasn't justified by obedience. He was justified by believing God's promises. Abraham's faith was displayed through his obedience, but it's not what justified him. And like Abraham, we too are justified by faith, but specifically faith in God's son, Jesus Christ. We believe the testimony of scripture about Jesus, his divinity, His humanity, his incarnation, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his future return. And as Paul said, and as Martin Luther stressed, the righteous will live by faith. But then ask yourself this. How exactly do we acquire the kind of faith that Paul talks about? How do we become like Abraham? How do we know when we have enough faith? How do faith and grace go hand in hand, as Paul indicates in Ephesians 2, 8? Is God gracious to us because we have faith? And if so, does that mean that faith itself is a work? Something we have to do to access God's grace? Or do we have faith 
because God is gracious to us. Now, another question to think about. Have you ever wondered why God created the world? What motivated God to speak creation into being in the book of Genesis? Why? Well, I'll give you a few clues, thoughts that people have had to this question. Number one, God didn't create the world because he needed it. God wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. God is God, and he lacked nothing before you and I entered the picture. So then why create? Well, the best answer that Christians have provided is what we're talking about today. That God created the world out of his grace. He doesn't need us to somehow complete him, and yet he generously gives us life anyway. From the very beginning of the Bible, God is doing things that he doesn't have to do out of his grace. But then speaking of grace, theologians often talk about the phrase common grace. Common grace is accessible to all people in God's creation. It's the reason our world functions. It's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when he says that God causes the sun to shine and rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace is the reason why our world, though thoroughly fallen and corrupted by sin, isn't as bad as it could be. Common grace is the reason you woke up this morning. It's the reason blood is pumping through your veins and air pumps through your lungs. It's the reason you can go to bed tonight knowing that the world will still operate within God's basic desired order when you wake up tomorrow. Common grace is the reason why there are still good and beautiful and true things in this world, fallen though it may be. So we have creative grace. We have common grace. But there's also what theologians refer to as saving grace or redeeming grace. And that brings us back to our passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we see the need for redeeming grace. Why do humans need to be saved or redeemed? Because of everything Paul just said. We're guilty of following this fallen world and even Satan himself. We're motivated by misguided passions and desires. Paul says, as a result, we're destined for wrath. Unless, of course, there's someone out there willing and able to redeem us. Now, that sounds like a pretty bad state of affairs, and it is. But the worst adjective Paul used to describe us is the fourth word of verse 1. That's when he says that we were dead. We're still walking, but we're dead men walking. We're alive and kicking to the things opposed to God, 
but dead to the good things of God. And if you add all these adjectives together, following the world, following Satan, misguided passions and desires, dead, unresponsive. If you add all those things together, Paul's arguing that in our sin, we are utterly alienated from God. The way that Augustine described his state before he came to faith in Christ, Augustine came way before Martin Luther, but really set the course for much of what Martin Luther would teach. Augustine said this, I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself. It was foul and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall. Not the object for which I had fallen, but my fall itself. I was seeking not to gain anything by shameful means, but shame for its own sake. The truth is that we follow in Augustine's footsteps. But even further back than that, we follow in Adam's footsteps. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, death spread to all because all sinned. There's another famous passage in Ezekiel 37 that addresses this topic. In that passage, God takes the prophet Ezekiel to a valley full of scattered, dry bones. And they're the bones of sinful Israel. And they deserve to sit in that dust to the end of time. But God asks Ezekiel whether these bones can live. Of course, the reasonable answer would be, No, they can't live. But Ezekiel remembers that it's God he's talking to. And so Ezekiel responds and says, Oh, Lord God, you know. And sure enough, Ezekiel learns that these bones can live. But God must take the initiative. Ezekiel can preach at those bones all he wants, but they're not going to respond. Skeletons can't respond to a sermon. They must be revived first. And in Ezekiel 37, God does just that. By the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, God breathes new life into those dry bones. And the truth is that we're not in any better shape than those bones in that valley when we're stuck in our sin. But in the same way that God, in his grace, raised those dead bones to new life, He's raising dead sinners like us to new life. Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, picking back up in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That brings us back to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We read that quote from Augustine about the sorry state he was in before he came to faith in Christ. But then after he came to faith, Augustine wrote this. 
Speaking of God, you called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now I pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. God brings sinners like Augustine and sinners like you and me to life by his grace. So what exactly is grace? Well, quite frankly, it's the reason we exist. It's the reason our world functions with some sense of order, despite the corrupting effect of sin. It's the reason sinners are raised from death and into life in Christ. So if you wanted to define it in one simple phrase, you might say something like this. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners. Unmerited favor towards sinners. We had nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table. And yet God has given us the gift of salvation. We had nothing to exchange for it. No down payment we had to scrounge up. There's no interest that we'll have to pay, and we'll never be able to pay God back for it. Grace is an utterly undeserved gift. And Paul makes it so clear in Ephesians 2, saying that our faith, our salvation, was not our own doing, not a result of works. Martin Luther understood that many people would be tempted to view faith itself as a work that saves us. They might arrogantly brag about how they have more faith than the person over there, and clearly God thought that was worthy of his grace. But Martin Luther reminds us that even our faith finds its beginnings in God's grace. If not for God's gracious initiative, None of us would believe to begin with. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It all goes back to God and his grace. And if everything about our existence, if everything about our salvation is a product of God's grace, this unmerited gift, the question could then become this. How can we possibly boast? In the big scheme of things, we're all sinners. And even when we were sinners, we weren't any smarter or any wiser or any more righteous or any more humble than anyone else out there. At least not enough to earn God's favor. And yet God has saved us. So who in our shoes and in their right mind could possibly brag. Every single good thing we have is from the grace of God. Now, recently I got an interesting email, and it was from a somewhat strange email address, and it was clearly a fake name. And often I would have just deleted this email without even opening it. I would have just assumed it was spam. But for some reason, I opened this one. And the person who emailed me wanted to remain anonymous, but they asked some pressing theological questions. And one of their questions was this. Can we make a deal with God? 
Now, ironically, I couldn't help but think of Martin Luther. Remember his deal with God and the forest when he said, God, if you save me from the storm, I'll become a monk. But the best answer I could give to that question was this. That in the big scheme of things, none of us is in any position to try and make a deal with God. A deal requires two parties and each party has something that the other one needs. But that's not the case if it's God on one side of the table and us on the other. We don't have any leverage. We have nothing to offer. And yet God is gracious to us in so many astounding ways. We deserve nothing, but he gives us everything in Christ. We deserve the worst, but he gives us the best. Now, as wonderful as God's grace is, and though we could talk about it for hours and hours and hours if we really wanted to, there are some errors. There are some temptations that we should avoid when we talk about God's grace. So what are the things that we should be careful to guard against? Well, the first one is obvious. We mentioned it briefly a few moments ago. We have absolutely no room for pride, no room for boasting. When it comes to our standing before God. When we're tempted to look down on those who do not believe. Be reminded that in the big scheme of things. Our salvation comes back to God's grace. In Romans 11, Paul warns Gentiles who are new to the faith. Not to look down on those Jews who haven't yet believed in Jesus. Paul's point is that when you're saved by grace. Nothing you said, nothing you did, no works you contributed. You have no room for arrogance. There's an old saying reminding Christians who see the sins of others to stay on their guard. It's a reminder that we should humbly trust in God. And the saying goes something like, if not for the grace of God, go I. In other words, when you see someone else's sin... Remind yourself that if it weren't for God's grace, you'd be guilty of the same things. When we are saved by grace, there is no room for pride, no room for arrogance, and no room for boasting. But the second thing we must guard against when it comes to being saved by grace alone is not to fall back into that mentality that we must earn God's favor. Maybe the most common example of this these days is referred to as moralistic therapeutic deism. It sounds like a big idea, but it's not that hard to understand. It's the mentality that God just wants me to be a good person and feel good about myself. And if I do those things, then I'll get to go to heaven. Now, does God want us to be nice? Sure. But being nice won't save us. Does God want us to feel good about ourselves? Maybe. But we also shouldn't forget just how hopeless we are apart from his grace. Salvation is not about being good people. It's not about feeling good about ourselves. It's realizing our dependence upon God. That we are utterly dependent upon his mercy. And a third thing that we must guard against is the idea that we're initially saved by grace. It starts with grace. But from there out... It's all up to us. 
It's the idea that sanctification and discipleship and growing in Christian maturity all come by the sweat of our brow. If we're not growing in faith, we just need to work a lot harder. Well, that's not true. The same grace that saves us is the grace that grows us. The same Holy Spirit who brought you to life to begin with is the Holy Spirit who dwells in your heart and mind right now. The same Holy Spirit bearing fruit for God's glory in your words and in your deeds. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you will grow. It might not always be pretty. It might not always be obvious. It might not be as consistent as we like. But ultimately, he's the one who does the heavy lifting. And when we grow, he's the one who deserves the credit. And then finally... The fourth thing to beware dates back all the way to Paul himself. It's a seductive idea, and we talked about it last week as well. It's the idea that being saved by grace becomes a license for sin. Paul addressed it in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words... If we're saved by grace, why not just keep sinning? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As we mentioned last week, justifying faith is a faith that works. Abraham obeyed God because he believed God's words. And in the same way, we obey God because we believe God's words as well. And because we are in such awe of the grace that he has shown us. We know that we can never serve God enough to repay the debt that he's forgiven us. But we serve anyway, because serving him is now our greatest joy. So if you view God's grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to sin, you haven't really understood God's grace at all. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 10 and 11, finishing out that passage, that while we weren't saved by good works, we were saved for good works. Not to continue in the same old ways of sin and death, but to walk in newness of life. Now, as Martin Luther lay on his deathbed, his last words were these. He said, we are all beggars. To his grave, even after all of the prayer, all of the work, everything that he gave up for the good of the church and the glory of God, after all of his works, Luther still knew just how gracious God was to him. And that in the big scheme of things, he was just a beggar. And that God was gracious. I pray that we would know the same thing. That we would remember that we are created by God's grace. We live in God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. And we're grown by God's grace. So if you're like Earl Hickey, 
If you have a list of things you feel you must do to earn God's approval. A list of wrongs that you must right. And maybe then God will love you. Crumple it up and throw it away. Because you can't contribute to. You can't manufacture your salvation by the sweat of your brow and the strength of your will. You can never work your way to heaven. Remember the words of Paul. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, again, you are so much better to us than we deserve. We don't deserve anything, and yet you give us everything. And so, Father, I pray that in all that we do, we will remember that it all comes back to your grace. We will hear all kinds of things in this world about who we are and what we deserve and what we don't deserve, all about our rights. But again, Father, in the big scheme of things, we owe everything good that we have to you. We see it in our day-to-day lives. We see it in the fact that we exist. We see it in the little tiny glimpses in our world that even though our world is dark, there are still good and beautiful things in this world. And we owe that to your grace. But Father, most astounding of all, is your redeeming grace, your saving grace, that you would raise sinners like us to new life, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might find joy in serving you, that we might find salvation by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, be with us. Help us to live by your grace. Help us to better understand how much you love us how much you care for us, and how much you've given to us. And as people saved by your grace, I pray that we would be gracious as well. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.